Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. Today, we are talking about internal family systems, how that blends with adoptees and and the parts that show up. So I have uh, my new friend, Marta, here. Please introduce yourself to listeners. Uh, So my name is Marta Sierra. I have been an IFS therapist since 2013. Um, I was legally trafficked from Colombia as an infant, uh, raised by a a white adoptive family system in New England. And yeah, over the years, I have really... um, been working intensely on myself as we do as IFS therapists. And so I've become really concentrated on, on helping my community really specifically work with adoption trauma and racial trauma and complex PTSD. Thank you. You said legally trafficked. I definitely want to ask about that here, here in a little bit, but also growing up in new England, I imagine, forgive me for my ignorance. It sounds like maybe a predominantly white space. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I mean, of course, not all of New England is exactly uh-huh. that way, but yes, I grew up in a small community, um, strongly majority white. I, I I didn't think there were other Colombian people on this earth uh-huh. as a child. You know, that's that's yeah. how isolating it was. You use the term legally trafficked. Tell, tell me a little yes. bit more about that. And you can even, you know, share parts of your story if you want. Some of my work with clients is always on claiming our stories, right? And I know you work so much around narrative and and telling our stories as healing too, Tasha. And so I'm always empowering adoptees to use whatever language feels right for them and to honor those shifts over their journey, right? So today I'm saying legally trafficked, who knows what I'll be saying in a couple more years. Um, That's a really important identifier to me. Uh, Adoption has a strong narrative in our culture uh, about being win, win, win for everyone. Baby gets a home, adoptive family gets a baby, and um, biological family uh, gets a home for their baby. It's a really damaging narrative in which we're seen as gifts. Uh, It just, it didn't honor the loss on any side, right? There's often a long history of loss for the adoptive family parents and this whole system sometimes can be intergenerational and then of course the loss of the birth family losing this member of their family and huge loss to the adoptee so um there's a lot of things i'm doing and the adoptees uh, that are speaking up are doing to try to shift that narrative and and one of my pieces of that is that i identify as legally trafficked i i am uh quote unquote lucky in that my paperwork was real And that's an important distinction because what that meant was that I was ultimately able to find my family. I have so many adopted brothers and sisters that have falsified illegal paperwork um, that may never be able to find their families as a result of that. So um, to distinguish from illegally um, trafficking, I, I say legally trafficked because unfortunately everything that happened to me 
is sanctioned by the world, by the systems of the world. And yet I believe it's completely unethical to buy and sell children and also to take an infant from its culture, its country, its language. Um, you know, I was lost from generations of my family, not just my mother. Martha, what it makes me think about is years ago, I worked with in the school system, worked with with children. And you talk about this loss of culture and some of my, the children that I worked with were from Guatemala and Honduras and, and various other countries. And I think that was one of the things when, when you're in a predominantly white system that they don't realize. And, and I remember working with one child who on their paperwork, they would identify as, as white. Mm-hmm. And I said, but you're not. And they said, yeah, but I, this is what I was told to put down. Oh yeah. And so not even knowing their own culture yes. and that ripping away of now you're with us and this is this is how we want you to identify so have you heard of that before oh absolutely uh absolutely it's not i and i mean that happened to me as a child mm-hmm. also like put down white mm-hmm. we're white you're white put down white mm-hmm. it, so it's not just the loss in the moment it's 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 a lifelong loss and then also it, it's it's such a severe severing of our cultural roots that yeah, a lot of transracial adoptees, transracial adoptee means someone that of a person of color raised in a white family system. Uh, almost always, of course, that can go a different way, very small percentage. Transracial adoptees struggle to see themselves as a person of color in adulthood, which also blocks our access to, I mean, healing in a very general way, but also just access to our community. And, and there can be a lot of body dysmorphia as well. Like some transracial adoptees do not see a person of color when they look in the mirror. It's confusing. And and to not know who you are at your core. Told you I was just recording an episode with with some friends and and we were talking about so much of our trauma as black and brown people. Yes. Is the fact that we don't know who we are. Yes. We've been told this is who you are. This is how you're supposed to behave and all, all of these different things. Yeah. Anything you, you want to add to that? Just that, yeah, it's, it's bigger than that. Right. You know, so I, I can say like as a, as a Colombian person, um, I'm indigenous. My blood is 65% indigenous blood. I identify as indigenous as, as part of the ways that I identify. And there's not many places for me to go within my family to find out about that because Colombians have an identity issue, right? Because of colonialism, we have disconnected from our indigenousness. There's um, there's that colorism within our culture. There's racism within our culture. There's all these ways in which we try to separate from that, right? So if I want to know, like, what tribe are we from, right? And like the history of that, there's not a lot of people for me to go to with that. So yeah, the layers of like our cultural lack of identity, right? There's all layers of that within any culture. And so then to come back into it as an adult and try to figure out all of these layers, it's very overwhelming. And then you just still have to, you know, manage your mental health on top of that, keep being a person on top of that. It's a huge undertaking to just keep doing that identity work and that healing. Yeah, and even, you know, as I think about, so, so you've got the the impact of white supremacy and the impact of capitalism, the buying and selling of literal babies. Yes. Some of the people that I work with who are adoptees, for the people that I'm in community with, an additional trauma of growing up in a family 
in which although you you didn't know it then there was real trauma real harm that was also happening yes and and for a long time for them it's not having anyone outside to say i don't feel safe in my family like or my community or my community yeah so yeah i'll break down the layers real quick mm-hmm. like because I see that, you know, I said complex PTSD for a reason. There are multiple traumas going on here. And, and it's important, of course, to name the layers because we have to name it to work with it, right? But it's also important because not every adoptee has every layer that I'm going to name, but I'm going to name the possible layers. So first we have separating an infant from its mother. That's the separation trauma. It's very literal. It does very literal forever damage to our bodies and brains. That's traumatic. A plus B equals C, <laughs> relevant of your relationship to that. Then we have the, the trauma of the whole 18 years of childhood in this family system that's not your biology, uh, where you don't have any racial mirrors. So if you're a transracial adoptee, I'll add the racial trauma on top of that, which yes, doesn't just include your, your little family that you live with, but includes community. Then you have the mental health issues that might exist in that family system and abuse that may happen in the adoptive family system as its own trauma. And then you also have brown and black babies growing up in white communities where we're at risk, where our bodies are at risk. And so I have a whole number of clients that were also victimized within their communities Um, So not always necessarily by an adoptive parent, but someone in the family system, someone in the community, because who are we going to tell? Who's going to believe us? Who do we have? And, And they can see that we don't have anybody. And so if we're to go with the model of we cannot start healing from a trauma until it's done, until it's no longer actively happening, like how we look at domestic violence, then we can't even really start to unpack this until the adoptee is fully out of the adoptive home. So that's a lot of years, almost 20 years, maybe longer, you know, maybe long. yeah. For, for those that get through it, for those that, that survive. Yes. Uh, and we have very high suicide rates um, in adoptees and we are overrepresented in every aspect of mental health, eating disorders, addictions, self-harm, depression, anxiety. That, that lack of community, that lack of, of belonging. Yes. And, and here's another thing um, that I was thinking one, and I don't know if, if I didn't hear you name it, but but you very well, very well might have any trauma that may have happened in utero. Yes, I didn't. But yes, add that in there. So, so, so you know, so then that that layer of of what's what's my birth story? What were what were the circumstances surrounding my, my birth? What did I what did she you know, what did my mother go through? Um, what did her body go through? What was was kind of transferred to me as a, you know, as a result of that? Yes. What did we go through together? You know, right. I, my mother and I endured other traumas while she was carrying me. Mm-hmm. And then um, one of the other things that, that I've also heard mentioned is, you know, you talked about like not having anybody to go to. Uh, one of the other things that it made me think about are adoptees that grow up in this family system And they're kind of, um, at least from my experience, sometimes treated as if like, you should be grateful. Like we, we rescued you. We, we got you from, from this, you know, dangerous place. Uh, you should be grateful for the home, for the clothing, for the food, for the, I saved um, you. That that is our cultural narrative. 
were saved and and how dare you yeah be disrespectful about that not be grateful not be of service to to everyone always it's a really intense burden and and it really it really profoundly affects us yeah for sure so regarding your own story and i guess using using ifs language what were some of the parts that you noticed even within yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I said 2013, that's actually when I did level one. So actually, I guess my introduction to IFS was the year before that I was working with a therapist who I did not seek out because she was an IFS therapist. It just happened to end up with her like you do sometimes. And mm, over many months, uh, finally got a protector to unblend that didn't want to read You're the One You've Been Waiting For. That was the first IFS book she had been trying to give me um, post this really big breakup in my life. And um, I had this part that was like really resistant. Um, eventually, I was able to unblend from her and I did read the book and everything just kind of opened from there. We dove right into doing internal work. I still vividly remember and will never forget the session where I met my baby. Um, it felt like I was with her for hours and it's still wild to, to think about and know that that happened within the context of the therapy hour. Right. But I remember the office and I remember the chair that I was sitting in and uh, it took so long for me to get her to even look at me. You know, she was like really alone, 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 alone. And uh, it was really powerful to build that connection with her in that moment and, and assume responsibility of her from that day forward. And, you know, so when I think about IFS with adoptees specifically, like why IFS, why IFS? Because we as adoptees need somebody who is never going to leave. And spoiler alert, that person is us. There is no one else. Other people can say that they won't go, right? But look where we are. We're in the middle of a two-year, who knows how long-lasting pandemic, right? People die. People move. People shift. People leave. It's not anyone else's responsibility once we hit adulthood, except ours. And nobody else is going to do it. And I don't know any other model that so well empowers clients that they can do that, that you can take care of this baby and, and then things can shift from there. They can shift from there. So many trailheads are coming up on, on that topic of, of what adoptees experience, what people who have grown up in foster care in the system experience. And then for anybody that just grew up in a really unstable environment, inconsistent environment, you want people who won't leave. That's it. Just you want that family, you want people that love you and that show that through just being there for you and being in your life. And so, yeah, th- those abandonment parts, those abandonment parts that, that, that come up. Yeah. Um, you know, I see the clients, there's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what positive narratives are trying to be sold to us. Uh, you know, we make sense of things as children, how we make sense of them. And we have kind of three options, right? Which is to understand that the world is chaotic and dangerous, to understand that our caregivers are um, incapable, or that it's our fault. The only one of those problems that's solvable for a child is it's my fault. So it's actually not three options at all, because the world is chaotic and dangerous and violent, way too hard to deal with as a child. How would we keep going? My caregivers are incapable or abusive, right? 
no way to keep going. If that's unchangeable either, what am I supposed to do about that as a kid? But if it's my fault, right? And so when we're talking about adoptees, if I manifested my own relinquishment, then maybe I have a chance. Maybe if I am perfect, I'm right, whatever, fill in all the burdens. Maybe if I do all of these things, uh, it won't happen again. It makes me think about, so I had a part, Marta, that, that I worked with with my own IFS therapist, an angry part. And what was underneath this in my work is I got a chance to meet my four-year-old self. Like you said, she, she for a minute, didn't even want to acknowledge me. And, and in that session, she said to me, you abandoned me. You did the same thing that they did. You left. You left. Like you, you didn't come back for me. You didn't, you forgot all about me. And it was this really beautiful, you know, moment. Thank goodness for IFS where I, you know, in, in just in my own healing, realized that this is really where the healing starts is knowing that. I can be there for myself. So when we think about coming home to ourselves, mm -hmm. that's kind of what that looks like and healing all parts of me. And then thinking about how did I abandon myself? Um, very I think common I for adoptees to have very little childhood memories. I have very few mm -hmm. childhood memories associated for the majority of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that until I was almost through my twenties. Um, mm -hmm got that information from my seven-year-old mm -hmm. about how she would leave her body. Mm -hmm. She showed me in an authentic movement exercise, actually one day in a training, how I would leave, how she would leave. Did you, where, because of, of trauma, I don't know if you have a, a high ACE score. I know I do. Adverse childhood experiences score. Where memories are, are foggy, my body kept the pain. Was it the same way for you and for... Yes, I would say, and, and you know, it's pre-verbal trauma, right? So the, the fun of healing pre-verbal trauma is that it's stored entirely differently in our brain and it will glom onto anything. So, mm -hmm. so our triggers are, can be a shift in the temperature, the wind, I don't know, it's the 75th Tuesday. Like it's, it can be really impossible to figure out the why of it because it gets displaced inside of us the wound. And so, yeah, it's really, it can be really, if you don't have a roadmap and if you don't, right, understand another thing IFS teaches, right, is like everything about you makes sense. You just may not be able to make sense of it right now, right? Like I know and trust that your parts are doing what they're doing for a reason. We may not understand all of it right now, but I really trust that. And so it's all real, right? it's all real and just coming from that compassion of of it's all real when you grow up in this kind of isolation when your grief is so disenfranchised and so unwitnessed you know to flip to the total other side and just say to ourselves to our parts I believe you I believe what happened to you happened to you I believe how painful it was is so I think so soul healing to be able to validate just your own experiences especially if you've grown up in a system where you've been gaslit a lot yes where you've been blamed told oh no it didn't happen that way you're remembering it wrong no I know the way that my body feels yes how my nervous system reacts when I'm in this environment this toxic environment yes so I think that a part of 
healing for adoptees has to include like honoring however you feel today. Absolutely. There's some history there. You don't have to recall it right now. It's okay. And a lot of what we're talking about could apply to all adoptees, but could you speak to the differences when it relates to adoptees of color and, and why that those parts, that trauma is very specific just for anybody that, that doesn't already understand. Yeah. Again, that, that piece of growing up without racial mirrors, it, it does a lot of damage. You know, I spent the first 10 years of my career working with eating disorders because one of the ways that my adoption trauma manifested was in an eating disorder. And a lot of that for me was um, both about like dealing with the pain that was holding in my body, but also, um, the effect that being raised in racial isolation had on me, which was a deep loathing of my body, of everything about it that that I love now that that comes from not just my mother, but my ancestors. And um, and I hated all of it, hated all of it. I, I did permanent damage to my body in in attempts of fixing it because the response around me wasn't that's how your body is. Let me show you how to love it. Or even the idea that I should love it would have been a revelation. It was just, oh, this is a problem. Let's go fix it. So for example, I had a lot of shame about the hair in front of my ears, my like little sideburns as a Latinx femme. I have extra hair there like we do. Well, I don't have as much anymore because I lasered it painfully, like uh, electrolysis did off as a middle schooler. So that was the reaction to my self-loathing. Yeah, let's go painfully remedy this for you. So it's like a tiny example, but I know that transracial adoptees have like 1 million of these, of ways that we were whitewashed and erased. And and the really, again, long-term effects of that, of not having any pride in, in ourselves. And again, that access to culture thing. You know, a lot of transracial adoptees really fear even attempting to access community because that belonging wound is so raw, right? If I come into a Colombian space and when one person tells me I'm not really Colombian, I'm out. I mean, I'm not out because that's not where I'm at in my process. Thank goodness. But, you know, I don't know how many people it would take me, but there's a certain amount and I'll break too and leave. You know, I can only take so much where I'm at in my part of the journey, but it's, when you don't have it rooted inside, you know, all the work I've done, you can't tell me I'm not Colombian girl. Like I, I will come at you now, but there was so many years where that would have sent me off the edge for sure, because I was so lost from myself. Uh, you know, so uh, adoptees that aren't in reunion, I often tell them, you know, like if you want to know what your biological family looks like, go home and spend some time in the mirror. You, Someone in your family has your nose, someone in your family has your eyes, someone in your family has your mouth, like you're wearing their face. They're here with you now, but we don't get that kind of support. My mind is like blown as I am listening to you because I'm sitting here thinking of people that I know <laughs> who are experiencing this very thing because they were adopted feeling like, oh, I don't belong to this community because I didn't grow up with them. I don't know the language. I don't know the history. I don't know the culture. I didn't grow up with it. But if you want to find that, you have to be willing to be around people, you know, that, that matches your, your culture, that matches your, like you said, your facial features. 
you have to be willing. I mean, and it's scary. It's really scary. So, so I don't want to minimize that, but, but you, you've got to be willing to do that. If you really want to know who you are, you got to get back connected to your culture. And, and that means questioning and decolonizing from white supremacy. You know, you had asked me in prep, you know, what do I know about love and belonging? That question hit me really hard. My first part that popped up was like, not much, because like, this is the loss, love and belonging. I mean, I know then the answers that came after that was, I know that fear blocks love, right? I believe that like we operate from fear or we operate from love, right? So I know that fear blocks love and belonging. And I know that trauma hardwires us to react from fear. Um, you know, I know that adoptees, we carry this deep place of terror. You think about an infant alone in the world. I don't have another word for it other than terror. And so what do I know about love and belonging? I know that we need community to heal. So powerful. Adoptees need other adoptees. Like we need oxygen. There's just nobody else that's ever going to understand it the way that we're craving. And so if we're going to release, right? In IFS, we talk about being our own primary caretakers, right? If we're going to release our support system from being that, um, we need those people that, that understand it. Uh, so that the secondary caregivers like don't have to fully get it, right? Our non-adopted people that love us will never understand. And when we get to release them from that, we get to seek that somewhere else. Um, and ideally with a provider as well, that's also adopted, that understands this, that's walking further ahead in front of us on the path to everything. What is your relationship now with your biological family, if you wanted to share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my family is, my biological family is my family. So language piece for me, that's my family. That's my only family. So I've only had them back in my life since uh, March, 2017. Actually, I just had my five-year anniversary this past week. Um, so I'm really, really close with my mom. She's incredible. She's, yeah, a really incredible human being. Um, who survived an insane amount of trauma. And yeah, reunion's wild. <laughs> reunion's super wild. And a lot has changed in those five years. What hasn't changed is my relationship with my mom. She's still the closest person to me and my family. We're in contact every, almost every single day. And yeah, the rest of it is, continues to develop as, as I continue to build those relationships. Building relationships with your family as an adult is very again, unique experience. Uh, and so I am still kind of at the beginning of this and I try to come back to that a lot. Yeah. Um, and as my language skills have improved over the years as well, my relationships have deepened in response to that. Just been a oh, that's so beautiful. The infant part of you that wouldn't look at you at first. Has she kind of been, been healed as you've got these relationships, you've traveled back home and gotten back what, what always belonged to you in a sense? Of course, there's some healing, right? All of that brings some healing. Later. And and yet what you last said, right, is like you got that back. What reunion teaches you is you can never go back. I will never not have been separated from her for 30 and a half years. 
the damage of that is with her and I, every single day, every single minute, our nervous systems are still responding to that separation. Um, and you can't get the time back with your family either. I can build memories now. I can strengthen relationships now, but we can't ever have what we have. You know, siblings have such short a shorthand from being raised together. You know, I don't have that with my siblings. And it's the more you get, Tasha, the more healing, the more like I was down there over Christmas and we all go to the Rio, to the river together as a family. And, you know, it's pretty shallow. You can like stand. So you kind of like stand around, like floating and talking. And I'm in this circle of women in my family, my primas and my tias. And, and we're all talking about like facial features in the family and like where they come from Just in the sun setting, like the nature in Colombia is like incredible, right? This magical moment that I would have never dreamed for myself. And when I'm living that, there's of course a huge surge of belonging and I root in and my heart opens wide and then a tidal wave of grief is right behind me. I lost so much, Tasha. And the more I get back, the more I know what I lost and what I'm what I'm still losing. Transracial reunited adoptees, like we live one foot in each country and it's it's painful. And transracial adoptees, if you're privileged enough to be able to connect back with, with you know, your co- exactly. country of origin, right? It's a privilege, absolutely, yes. Right, and and so, and what you speak of, it it reminds me, like when I talk about trauma with my, for myself and with my clients, and clients often ask like, can you just ever be healed of trauma? I said, listen, that's a tall order. Oh, and, and, and what I show them is I have like a big water bottle and I'll say what healing for me looks like is you may start down here <laughs> and, and then over time, you just kind of go a little bit higher, but through your healing process, you're always being made aware of, of certain parts in certain areas of your life yes. that are just painful. And, and I don't know that, that. I haven't met anybody yet that's that's been and they're 100% healed. What healing looks like is is I can bring my healing along. I can bring my joy, my love, my courage, all of those those things along. Yes. But guess what? Pain is right there. Yes. Always right there. Yes. And so so for me, I see pain as like kind of almost like a part, but but not really. But but pain is just kind of like okay, I see you. Yes. It's okay to cry over the things that that you're grieving, the things that you'll never have. But I also see you creating your chosen family. There's so much intergenerational stuff here too, Tasha. You know, I've heard you speak about, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be, I'm going to do as much healing as I can, as many days as I'm given on this earth. And, and, you know, that's, I get, I'm going to get as far as I get. There's just such a, so much intergenerational trauma. There's so much trauma in my family, in my culture, countries that have sold a lot of babies. There's a reason for that. There's a global colonialism, white supremacy piece of that. Countries that are struggling, that are at war, um, that need that need to use every resource available to them will sell babies under duress. And there's so many systemic issues that go into this, into how we come to be so severed 
from our roots and the repercussions on everybody. I did want to say too, Tasha, that you, the other thing you had asked me about previously was what kind of protectors are common with adoption. Yeah. And I didn't really have a great answer just because, you know, we know, right, that the same trauma can affect people very differently, right? People's systems are so individual. And that's what you learn working with IFS too, right? Is that everyone's system processes something differently and the protectors that arise up might be different. But what what I think of when I think about this is the common burdens of adoptees. That is something I think about a lot. And there's three huge pieces that I want to make sure I named with you today of that. And so the first I spoke to a little bit earlier, which is the neurobiological damage, the very literal physical burden that we're carrying around. So when you separate an infant from its mother, there's, um, yeah, damage to all of our bodies, but our brain, especially it's such a pivotal moment of brain development. And again, that's its own whole book and lecture. And I won't go into all the scientific pieces of it, but I want to drive home that like that damage is permanent there are ways that we cannot heal some of the things that happen to our brains that we deal with every day that affects our symptoms every single day. And then second, you have this innate sense of the loss of the innate sense of trust in self, in the world, and in other people. And that shows up everywhere. It touches every part of our lives. And then the third, which has come to be like my new hill that I'm a die on, because I'm just so passionate about this one, Tasha, which is we prioritize other people over ourselves to such a, an immeasurable, like unsafe degree. We are, we are really taught, right? When you're bought and sold, you are taught like you're, you exist for the other people. That's the only reason you're here. And, and, and that that's essential to your safety too, to buy into that. So we buy in and that loyalty to self over, um, to others over self is really just a big, big, big burden that has like so many roots and so many tentacles and reaches in so many directions. Well, and, and as I, as I hear you, it makes it easy, you know, when you already lack community and, and family and whatnot, it makes it easy to be a, a, a you know to be abused in your the relationships that you do have. Oh, absolutely. And then, at least in the people that I've worked with, codependency is yes. is is heavy because well, I, I need to be in their life because this is this is my part in their life. This is what I provide. What would they do without me? What what am I going to do without them? And it can be really sick relationships. Yes. Because I mean, you've already experienced estrangement and abandonment and alienation and all the things. Who wants to go through that again? Right. Yeah. Those are three. I mean, th- those parts, in addition to, I mean, I felt like you named so much that adoptees go through and like the legacy burdens. And then you hit on even how it impacts the body and the body holding all of that trauma. We're carrying two sets of legacy burdens until we, yeah. it, until you put one set down, if you choose to put one set down, right? Which is, it's just so much. Yeah. Could you also carry a third legacy burden though? Even like the legacy of your adoptive family, whatever was passed down from them? Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Like the biological family legacy oh. burden and the adoptive family system. Oh yeah, burden. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, 
yeah, there's, there's so much there. Um, what are some ways that adoptees, you know, even one thing that they can do to try to even get connected with community, even if it's not a community that shares their, their, their culture, their race. I mean, we live in the time of the internet. So that's kind of the the nice thing is you don't have to have people in your area. Right. So um, there's a huge, I'm not on Twitter, uh, but there's a huge adoptee community on Twitter. There's a huge adoptee community on TikTok and on Instagram. Um, and, you know, there's podcasts um, and there's all these ways to educate. And then there's uh, you know, Facebook groups. I always encourage people to check that out, whatever specific uh, subset you identify with, even within the community. You know, I'm in like, I don't know, five Facebook groups for Columbia not adoptees. I'm not super active anymore, but in the beginning of my journey, that was everything. I would spend hours reading, you know, way before I was ready to post, right? You just enter the space and you just read and you read and you cry and you yell and you just start to digest that there are other people that that you're not insane that it's all real and then there's you know other in-person kind of ways kind of seeing what's in your area adoptees connect is a peer-run support group you can see if there's one of those in your area that is i think the most important is yeah you may not be in close proximity physical proximity to people like you but just knowing that no you're not out here alone millions of people are experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing, yes. it may require a degree of work, getting online, doing a Google check, even joining local meetups uh, or online meetups. Uh, we've been in a pandemic for two years. So online meetups have been the thing that, that we've all done, you know, to try to connect with people. So yes. there's no better time to connect with people that share the thing that you, that you were, that you experienced previously and to get that support. So yeah, thank you. There's just that point where you have to have the other adopted people involved. I just, I know I said something like that before, but I do, I feel so strongly about it. I, I have been in my own therapy since I was 18. And by the time I hit, let's see, when did I start searching? Yeah. Like end of my twenties, you know, I was in individual therapy. I was working on my adoption trauma. I had met my infant. I had been taking care of her for a few years already. And I was coming undone. And I woke up one morning after a night where I had been triggered watching a show and cried in fetal position. You know, I just spent hours with my infant that night, soothing her, eventually got to sleep. And I woke up in the morning and thought, I... I don't think therapy is enough. Individual therapy is not enough. I need other people who understand what is happening inside of my body right now. And I Googled um, groups for adult adoptees and I was in one the next week. And I stayed in that throughout my whole search and reunion process. So important. What is giving you a bit of joy today? Like, you know, there's anything, um, what's giving you joy? Uh, today, I mean, always my fur babies, I have a dog and a cat. So that's, that's my daily answer. And then I would say this week is definitely Lizzo's new show. Yeah. Gave me life. It's just a whole ass movement. And I, uh, you know, again, to go back to the body image piece, you know, that was a huge piece of my healing. Um, and so the, all, there were so many aspects in there and there's an adoptee, uh, in the crew too. And, um, 
I just think she's doing such beautiful things for women in fat bodies and women of color and um, and and releasing a lot of intergenerational burdens as well around sexuality, around uh, just, yeah, living for it. Some reason watching that show made me, cr- I got a little bit weepy on, on a couple of episodes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the representation. The good, good ones that like wash you clean. Yeah, yeah. The repu- representation and, and then even knowing Lizzo's story a little bit and seeing, you know, her, uh, you know, she lost her father and, and, and then she was homeless for a while and just her come up and now look at her it's taking her being in a fat body and being willing to be who she is regardless of whatever you know other people might may say or the criticism and opening the door for other people like so beautiful so for anybody that hasn't watched Lizzo's show it's on Netflix and you need to watch it because it's it's really good Marta, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, I think this has been such an important uh, conversation and I just know already, like so many people are gonna really be encouraged. So thank you for spending some time with me. You're welcome, it's an honor. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.